This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. month, the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast welcomes Justine Saracen, a prolific writer of historical fiction. Although her work has touched on a number of eras, she has a special interest in World War II and its aftermath, including her most recent release, Berlin Hungers, which came out in April. Welcome, Justine. Well, thank you. I'm so pleased to be here. So why don't you start by telling us about your most recent book? Berlin Hungers is sort of a, a a slight offshoot because it doesn't take place in World War II. I have four novels that take place in World War II, and that's sort of my micro niche. Isn't, isn't it five now? My list has five. Oh, five would count. <laughs> Count, counting the new one, yeah. That's about the, the airlift, the, uh, the Russian blockade in uh-huh. Berlin airlift, which took place in 1948. But it counts because it's still in a, in a war-torn Germany, all the... Um, the images that one associates with the war, other other than the the deaths, um, well, there's deaths too, but they are they remain the same, and it takes place in in Berlin, so it's a, it's another war story, even though it's uh, post-war. Uh-huh. So, uh huh. So, what's the plot? Um, well, the plot the plot actually, you know, as with all my novels, um, I cheat because the plot is the plot that history provides. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I try to weave around a, um, an interesting story um, that that shows depth about the event itself, but then um, weaves in women and then at some point um, a romance. But I don't write romances, I write historicals that, in, that include uh, as a subplot a romance. Mm-hmm. So the, the plot of the uh, of Berlin Hungers is a young British woman um, who has flown planes in World War II after the war, wants to keep on flying, but cannot. So she joins the the uh, RAF, although she would, would have been called a, a WRAF. Um, she joins in the hopes of being around planes. The only way that she can get anywhere near them is to be a controller, an mm. air traffic controller. So she's sent to Berlin to do that. And so we witness the uh, the blockade and the airlift through her eyes because she's part of the machinery that lets it happen. Uh-huh. Um, and while she's there, she's in Berlin, we get to meet the other female character. Um, and we see a little bit of her background. She's a, Ber- a Berliner, Berlin woman, um, who's, when we're first introduced to her, she's being gang raped. Mm. I do not portray that. I, I, I don't want to, and I couldn't. But um, because so many hundreds of thousands of women were, um, it would be false to create um, a woman in Berlin who had not been so abused. So we meet her right after she's been gang raped, and we watch her development. And at some point, she meets the British woman who's controlling traffic, and together they they endure. It's about a year. They endure the year of the uh, of the airlift, mm-hmm. and they endure because it was it was almost like a, a war initiative because the planes were coming in and and men were dying. Pilots were dying. There were lots of accidents, and the people of Berlin were still suffering a great deal because it was not quite enough to sustain them. So that's that's the plot. 
Yeah, it occurs to me that we may well have listeners young enough that they don't know the context for this. Brief synopsis. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. And um, one of the reasons I, I started writing, well, there's several reasons, but one of the many reasons I started writing about World War II in general is a discovery that there are, in fact, many Americans, uh, a shocking percentage of young Americans who know nothing at all about World War II. Um, they think of the war as being having one villain, Germany, one victim, the Jews, and one hero, the Americans. And that's all they know because they've seen one or two movies about yeah. it. And I write about the nuances, the gray areas, um, and all the populations involved, all the suffering in all directions that went on. Um, but I suppose you know, saying people will even know less about the airlift. So I suppose yeah, they, me, they may me... they may have seen the wall coming down, but they don't know why the wall was there necessarily. Well, the wall actually is unrelated to the airlift. Yes. Um, let me yes. give you two or three sentences. Um, after the war, you have to imagine Germany um, totally devastated, occupied by four armies, the most aggressive of which was the Soviet army because it had also lost the most. It lost about 20 million men, uh, 20 million people, men and women both. So it wanted nothing but revenge and reparations. The Western countries had suffered much, uh, the Western allies had suffered much less, so they were more benevolent towards the Germans and simply wanted to develop a democracy to have a, a buffer zone with the Russians. This tension increased. I mean, that, that's the core issue. Yeah. This tension increased until the Russians said, um, we don't want you in Berlin. Berlin is in our zone. It was actually far into the Soviet zone, so you can't come anymore. They've like, blocked, um, they blocked traffic, train traffic, and, and road traffic, and water traffic. Fortunately, there, there was already an agreement in writing for three narrow air corridors, and so using those, the Western Allies managed to sustain Berlin for about a year with coal and food. But it was also to stand stand their ground. Um, if they, they if they relinquished Berlin, they would be relinquishing, relinquishing the capital of Germany. Yeah, uh, would have changed uh, Germany's fate very much. Yeah. So in your bio, you call yourself a quote recovered academic unquote. I'm curious, was history your focus in academia, or did history seduce you away from your original field? Well, I was seduced by I was seduced by a woman. <laughs> Uh, but I'll come to that later. <laughs> My academic background is German, uh, Germanistic, it's called, German studies. Uh, um, the language, the literature, including back to the Middle Ages, and its history. But of course, most people think of Germany and they think of the war because they were. we most noticed them <laughs> during mm -hmm. the war. So I was interested in that in general, all the moral issues about Germany and the war. But then I met and fell in love with and lived with for 10 years with a, um, a Jewish woman whose ex-husband's, well, so whose father-in-law, her ex-father-in-law, had been in Dachau. Hmm. So I suddenly had a personal interest in, in Germany's role in the war. And having lived in Germany, I was already aware of the German perspective, what, what the war looked like to Germans. And now I was seeing how it looked to, to, to Jewish survivors. Mm -hmm. So I found this so fascinating. There were just so many stories to be told that I wrote my first World War II book about that called Tiger Tiger. Uh -huh. Tiger Burning Bright. And then I was there and I realized that I had a font of information already packed into my brain because of studying so much of German history that I went on writing other perspectives on the war. 
having already a, a very strong background in German and European history and uh, a Jewish partner. So that, that answers the, the next question I had on my list, which was, what is the special appeal of World War II? And it was, you were there, you were interacting with people who had lived it, and it was, you know, immersive. And, and I can see how the appeal of, of fictionalizing that, processing it through fiction, would be uh, very attractive. Well, it was, it's very vivid to me. I lived in Germany for a year when I, I went to university before I met uh, my partner. I speak German. I speak, mm -hmm. I speak it like a, almost like a native, I've been told. And so I know what it's like to be German, and I know what it's, and now with creeping fascism in America, I know what it's like to be the, the in quotes, the good German. Yeah, it's, it's so easy to look the other way. I mean, I feel that in my everyday life of, of yeah. having the privilege to, to not go out there on the front lines and, and put my body on the line. And I try to do what I can, but I, I, I can see how it happens, yes. Yeah, and those who don't know history are, are condemned to repeat it. I don't want them to repeat it. And like you said, we, we know so much about the war mostly through Hollywood, and in Hollywood it's all very black and white. It's, it's yeah. you know, it's, it's villains and heroes. And villains and heroes and always the Holocaust. I don't. I don't want in any way to to diminish the uh, the profundity, the catastrophe of the Holocaust. Absolutely, but that cannot be the story of World War II. World War II was not about the Holocaust. World War II was about this horrible disease that overtook Germany and then Europe, of yeah, national frenzy nationalism. And in part, the Holocaust was what they used to worm their way into people's brains and say hey, you know, hate these people and let us do what we want. And that's what we're seeing again. Yeah, yeah, but there's definitely a parallel and several parallels. So that's, and I, I because I was a professor, um, I have a pedagogical urge that never goes away. <laughs> I, uh, and I realize that the burden is on me to write a novel that, first of all, someone wants to read. Someone yeah. has paid money to buy my book. They're not, they don't want to be lectured to. And they didn't buy a history book. They bought a historical novel, a historical romance, looking for, looking to be entertained, uh -huh. and that's what I have to do. But second to that, what I try to do is I sort of sneak in, I weave in, sneak in the things that I want them to know, but mainly about the gray areas in the war, uh -huh. and all the people involved in the war. So you mentioned earlier that you've got romance arcs in your stories, but they are not romance novels as a genre. And knowing how thoroughly attached lesbic readers are to their romances, I'm wondering, do you get pushback about that? Do you get people saying, it's like, no, no, I want more romance in my story? Not so much pushback, it's just that I don't, I have a very strong readership, but they're a small readership. Because uh -huh. especially new lesbians, young lesbians who are just, they just want a quick read. They don't want anything that's going to require thinking. I don't say that as an accusation. Uh -huh. um, they they want it to be kind of a, a lesbian candy bar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they they want they want they want a, a, a quick a quick image. Uh, they want to see women falling in love and falling into bed, and and they pay money for that, and that's fine. That's wonderful. Um, the people who want to see that happen more slowly in a in a in a informationally dense context, those are they're they're rare, and I and I can't do anything about that. That's who I write for, and it's never going to be. The, all those who simply want a quick romance. Yeah. Well, this is, this is, of course, one of the reasons why I started the, this history podcast is to let people know more about 
historical fiction in lesbian fic and and you know let people know the types of stories and why they might want to read it so uh, but but yeah I, I was wondering if you'd had that experience of of people thinking that they're not interested because it's not genre romance well uh, i have discovered interestingly because of one of the questions that you asked me earlier was are there very many other writing in the in this genre and the answer is sort of yes but they're they're making much more of a concession to the romance end of it because i've read a few and even though yes it's historical right away we have the romance beginning mm -hmm. i think um, I, I think it's just people moving closer to what the readership wants and i'm i'm a i'm a grumpy old lady <laughs> um, i write what i want to write and i think i write it very well and i think i i think i make it entertaining but you, you do have to slow down to read my notes mm -hmm. And I could write, I could have the romance beginning early on, but then I'd have to, I'd have to detract a lot of the uh, history, and I don't want to mm -hmm. do that. I think the history is too important, too exciting. <laughs> I think the details that 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 surround all the events of World War II and and uh, the post uh, post war time uh, and the airlift are fascinating. They're riveting. You, you just have to look at them, and I want people to look at them. Although I I. I I think people are attracted to the two 20th century major wars, or, well, let, let me be sure, the, the two 20th century major roles that America and Western Europe were involved in, um, exactly. and because of the way that war disrupts social expectations and creates opportunities. And there are a lot of historic romances I've seen where the opportunity of women to move into, you know, traditionally masculine roles uh, to be active, to be independent, the way that the economics of, you know, the war effort in the America allowed women to have independence and therefore to explore uh, new social models. I think that's attractive to people who are writing ro historic romance. That's, that's a, that is a fact of history that did, it did up, uh, open up opportunities for women. Um, a very significant example of that is in Soviet, the Soviet Union. Um, so the Soviet Union had, even though it had um, communism theoretically um, proposes the equality of the sexes, in fact, women had very traditional roles. But with the, with the outbreak of war and with the, the invasion, the astonishingly rapid invasion of, of uh, Russia, uh, Ukraine and Russia, by the Germans, cause it all to reverse and suddenly these women who are housewives and um, and students and, and young ladies they were put in uniform and put into every single um, part of the military they were pilots they were tank commanders they they were in infantry they did artillery they did barrage balloons the, the war opened up the possibility for them to do anything that they were capable of doing mm -hmm. less so of course in the in the west but still um, you did have women flying planes uh -huh. So I would like to talk about your, your non-World War II novels for a bit. It seems to me, uh, when you've written about earlier eras, you use this technique that uh, I call it cross-time approach, and I, that may be the wrong term in general, but where, where stories are either involving a modern character who is delving into the past, and that's how the historic aspect comes in, or, or stories that actually take place across multiple eras, where it's either you know, people who live in that era and there's a parallel in the story or, you know, sometimes I, I use this term especially to cover ones that have a time travel aspect or a past lives aspect. 
And I'm, I'm curious, um, what is the appeal of that approach to you in writing about history? You know, you've identified something that I wasn't aware I was doing, but you're quite right. It is cross-millennial uh-huh. in some cases. I, I think I can think of three of my novels where I did that. And I think my mo- you're making me articulate something which I haven't articulated before. Oh, good. But, but <laughs> I think what was happening is the sense that there are human behaviors which are timeless. They occurred in antiquity and they incur, occurred in the Middle Ages, and they occur now. Um, the most vivid example I can think of, it just popped in my mind right now, and I'm not prepared, um, is um, the uh, G- beloved Gomorrah that, that duplicates the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the, in the 21st century with, uh-huh. a, um, with the, the husband of the, one of the protagonists basically being uh, reenacting Sodom and Gomorrah mythology. Um, so, but I, I suppose behind that is the, the notion that there is there is kind of an absolute set of behaviors. Oh, this is worth an article, an intellectual oh, yeah. article. <laughs> There's a set of behaviors that we as human beings repeat, and some of them are dastardly, and some of them are heroic. But there are mythical patterns, and they are they are they are in our DNA. Um, uh-huh. I had no idea that I was writing for that reason, but <laughs> well, I was noticing that in in uh, Sarah, Son of God, you've got you know the, the multiple eras oh, brought yes, in, yes, yes. and and yes. in Beloved Gomorrah and um, um, in the Ibis Prophecy uh, duology, right? You right, get right. that as well. Yeah. So and oh, and and the Mephisto Aria as well. So so I saw this what, definite pattern. Um, what is the last thing you said? Uh, um, Mephisto Aria. Oh, So to me, it jumped out as this, there's this, this very strong pattern. So, so I'm glad that, that suddenly it's like, huh, you didn't know you did that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And of course that gives depth to the novel and that, that separates it yet again from the standard romance novel where you put your, your reader into a certain era, any era you wish, and you have a character in that era, meet another character in that era, and they fall in love. Uh-huh. And that, so it's a very straightforward romance, and that some of the um, some of the novels that I've read that call themselves historical romances do just that. There's only one, one level of reality, uh, and that's fine. Those are, those are the quick pleasure romances, but I don't seem to... Um, be able to do that. I think the other things always roll out along with it, with my story. Well, I think another reason uh, some authors use that kind of technique is that it gives the reader more of a, an anchor. It gives the reader a, a character, a modern character to connect with, who then takes them on a tour into history, as it were, and, it, and they can, you know, there, there's a connection with the more familiar That's true, and Sarah, Son of God, that's certainly the case, but uh, the message of of Sarah, son of God, was that we we think we have this new phenomenon called the trans uh, uh-huh. trans man or trans woman, when in fact it existed in the in the in the book in the in the Italian Renaissance, and then mm-hmm. <laughs> and look here, it exists also in antiquity, uh-huh. in biblical antiquity, and I, I don't want to give away the shock element in that in that novel. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I, but I, but that's what I wanted to to say. It is this modern thing? These things that we think of as modern phenomena are not. Yeah, and, human, and so we carry with us the baggage of millennia. And, and I know that I find in in talking about the historic research, I do that expressing that parallelism 
while not being absolute. You know, so talking about the overlap between homosexuality and trans identity in history um, can get really intricate because these are people who are living lives very different in all ways from ours and having different images of what they were doing. And it's, and it's fascinating and, and a, a, an enormous minefield as well. One also has to be careful doing that to try to be faithful to the period. One of the traps that one falls in easily is to go to another century and but then have all the mannerisms, have the attitudes, have even some of the the phraseology of the modern time. And that's why bother to go to the other era if you're bringing in modern notions. Yeah, and especially in the area of sexuality. As I was, I'm always interested in how authors who are writing historical characters approach that question of researching and portraying understandings and attitudes towards sexuality in the past. Did you have any particular challenges in this area? No, because I, I, I assumed uh, initially um, a, a universal hostility to homosexuality mm -hmm. or its invisibility, uh, for, especially for women. Homosexuality has always existed, but it's been under the guise of friendship, even in very intense friendship, women to get away with it. So I haven't, have, haven't really addressed the subtleties of the, way, of the way homosexuals are treated throughout history because I assumed they would have been abused. What are some of your favorite research sources? So I'm not talking necessarily about the most comprehensive ones or the most useful ones, but what are some of the research sources for your writing that were you, you were delighted to find that you just said, oh my God, this is fabulous. I have to use this somehow. Well, let me answer that in two levels. On a general level, for all of my novels, whenever possible, I go to the place I'm talking about because I want to write in such a way that the reader will feel like they are there. I need to know what it's like to be there, what it smells like, what the background sounds are like, what the, what the atmosphere is like, um, what the people passing me by look like. Um, when I went to Venice because of the, the Venetian novel, those, because those buildings are still there, I, I'd imagine living in some of the houses, and I imagine my friends living in some of the houses. Mm. So my research there was simply being there. As for specific researches, research sources, my best one for Berlin hungers was a book called, I recommend it to anyone hearing this podcast, A Woman in Berlin. Uh, if you read this book, you will realize how much I plagiarized from it. <laughs> um, it is an, uh, it written it's by anonymous, and there's no author name toward it. She was a journalist who suffered through the uh, the period right after the war. She also was gang raped in the very beginning of the, of this of her diary, um, but she was very articulate because she was a journalist and she happened to have spoken Russian. So this was this was so much information. Um, I, I mean, I was—it was like a feast of information, and and um, and I and I was able to put a great deal of it in um, into my own novel because she gave me the, the the most vivid idea of what it was like to live in Berlin in 1945 uh -huh. and 1946, and up through, up through the uh, the blockade. Uh -huh. So I'd recommend that book. I mean, it's available in, now in about six languages. Um, she wrote it, um, and with and uh, her publicist agreed to not publish her name 
um, and, until after she died. Mm-hmm. And even after she died, the publicist said, no, I, I, I want to respect her privacy and still has not. So there's a little, the book always has a little description in the back that anonymous doesn't mean that it's fictionalized. Right. It was really... It's a real journal written by a real woman, but she does not want to have her name known. Uh-huh. So you've had a book come out really recently, but I know how the, the schedules of these things go. So you're presumably already working on the next project. Um, you want to talk about that or do you not like talking about in-process books? No, that's fine because um, this one is going more slowly, not, not for lack of inspiration, but just I get tired of... Um, pushing myself every day to have to do a certain amount and I don't need to do that I'm, I'm getting too old for that <laughs> um, plus living in a globally warmed um, Europe um, I never see snow or I very oh. rarely see snow so I made a trip to Finland with a friend where they had snow up to your booties um, and um, I got to know about the, the Sami people we call them Laplanders, I mean, we Americans call them Laplanders, and I've decided to write yet another war novel, but primarily about Norway in the war, with a lot of information about the Sami. Uh-huh. I think they're very, they're, 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 they're native uh, inhabitants of, of uh, Norway, Sweden, uh, Finland, and a small part of, uh, of northern Russia. Uh-huh. So they're, they're stretched across all those four countries. And they are like... They were for a while like like Native Americans on, on kind of reservations, isolated from the mainstream culture. But now they've been now they're they're very much caught up in the tourist industry. Uh-huh. Uh, life is now the the Sami way of life is like the Native American way of life, pretty much eradicated. Uh-huh. But I'm right about that and, and snow. Did I mention the snow? <laughs> <laughs> and and this again, I think you said will be another World War Two novel. Yes, it'd be about the Norwegian resistance, uh-huh. of which there, uh, which there was rather little, but there were some major events that happened, uh, resistant, resistant uh, mm-hmm. events that happened. Uh, there's even a movie made about about one of them, and I will I will include that because I steal from history. I'm allowed to. <laughs> Are there any historical stories that you want to tell sometime that you just haven't gotten there yet? Yes, there are a couple, but they're way too dangerous. Oh. I don't, uh, at some point, maybe if I feel like it's my last novel, I'll write about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Oh. Because I find them horrifying. Only one nation in human history has obliterated an entire city with an atomic weapon, and that was the United States, and we did it twice. Yeah. And I feel that needs to be talked about, but I'm afraid it's, a, it's such a minefield to write about it uh, and not get a lot of um, blowback. Mm-hmm. The same with Israel-Palestine. Oh yeah, yeah. Talk about minefields. That yeah. that one is a, a really and tough knot. I would lose a significant portion of my Jewish readers, and I don't have very many Palestinian readers, <laughs> so uh, I better I, I better stay away from that until I'm ready to stop writing. Then I'll be the last one. <laughs> <laughs> so if listeners wanted to follow you on social media or keep keep up with you online, where should they go? Well, I'm on Facebook, but lately I'm much more on Twitter. But I do, not, I do not encourage them to go there to look for my political opinions because um, I'm, I'm pretty adamant about them, and uh, I'd rather be, I'd rather be liked, not <laughs> know the real me. Uh-huh. So, uh, um, the Facebook is fairly safe. I have pictures of my garden and my dog and. Uh, 
and uh, occasionally political remarks. But uh, don't don't look for me on Twitter. Okay. So so uh, with that in mind, um, I will put up links to your books and to your social media, but I'll leave Twitter off of it. <laughs> so thank you so much, Justine Saracen, for joining us on the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. It's lovely talking to you. It's uh, very strange to think that I'm, I'm seeing you and you're seeing me, but all that's going to uh, be, be offered to the public is my voice. I'm trying to make my voice sound interesting. I don't know how to do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know some, a lot of people really like the video format and, and could put it on YouTube, but it would make the editing a lot harder. You know, it's easier to conceal edits when the person isn't jumping around. Right, it's true. Yeah. But it's been a pleasure talking to you, and uh, your, your questions have been really brilliant. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 